Uh, we're going to be continuing in the um, Ecclesiastes series, so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, if you're new or if you've been out, uh, the past three weeks we've been walking through this very encouraging letter of Ecclesiastes. And if you're not familiar with the book, you're sensing by the laughter that that's kind of a joke. It's a, it's a heavier book. Uh, it's written by King Solomon, who we see has embarked on this experiment with unlimited resources, trying to find mean, meaning and satisfaction in what this physical world offers. We've seen him test a variety of experiences, and so far he's making this case that under the sun, everything is vanity. It's futile. It's, it's like a vapor. It doesn't last. Under the sun, our wisdom is never enough. Pleasures we seek, whatever shape and kind, can never satisfy. And the accumulation of stuff continually leaves us wanting more. The reality is that if this is all that there is, if there's only a life under the sun, it will disappoint, it cannot sustain. We've seen Solomon say eight times so far in these two chapters, vanity, it's all vanity. So as we start to wrap up chapter two this morning, um, Solomon remains stumped. He, he continues to be frustrated. All this stuff I have should be able to satisfy. I should be able to find meaning in what I've done. It doesn't make any sense. Solomon's frustrated. So this morning, we'll join Solomon on his experiment uh, as we look at the topic of work. Perhaps this area, Solomon's thinking, will be able to provide some meaning and sense of satisfaction and joy. And for us today, uh, perhaps the Lord would provide each one of us with some insight as we tune in and glean from Solomon's experience. So let me pray once again, and then we'll dive into our study uh, for this morning. Uh, Father, thank you that you are a speaking God, and you've sent Jesus by the Spirit to speak to us clearly. You've given us your word as a means, a resource by which we can know you more deeply and hear your voice daily. So Lord, I pray today that as we set ourselves under your word, that you would speak to us, and not just give us information, but Holy Spirit, that you would bring about the heart transformation and the will motivation that's needed this morning for us to walk faithfully as your children in this world. So Lord, would you speak to us? Would you shape us? Would you form us by the hearing and unpacking of your word this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to dive into verse 18, but before we do, look at verse 10. I want to make sure we're hearing Solomon's thoughts in their full context. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was the reward for all my labor. So at this point, Solomon is viewing his work as something that enables him to get other things. His work is what resourced his indulgence in pleasure and the acquisition of possessions. And this is the view many of us have of work, right? We work for something else. We work to play. We work for the weekend. We work to make money to buy things that we need, things that we want. Many of us work not for the joy of the work itself, 
but for the reward of the work. And this is part of Solomon's perspective of work under the sun. And look at verse 11. He continues, Thus I consider all my activities which my hands had done in the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. Skip ahead to verse 17. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Do you feel Solomon's frustration here? All my work is vanity. I'm simply striving after wind. What's the point of all this? My work grieves me, and there's no profit, there's no purpose to my work. My work, along with everything else, he says, is futile. So from this context, we dive into our verses for today as we continue to build out this under-the-sun perspective. We'll look at an under-the-sun perspective, then a beyond-the-sun perspective, and then we'll apply some things at the end. So Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18. Thus, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. So at this point, Solomon doesn't just hate his work. He hates the fruit of his work as well. All the pleasure, all the possession he's been able to acquire through the work, he hates even that. And this is a common feeling, right? We we work hard to get this or do this, and at the end of the day, we find that those things don't satisfy. The fruit of our labor often leaves us disappointed. You know, previously, Solomon had found pleasure in his work. We saw in verse 10 that his heart was pleased because of all his labor. But at this point, the enjoyments run out. All he accomplished and everything he acquired was diminished by a reality. And he says it in verse 18. Look at the second part. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So Solomon's looking ahead towards his death, considering what will happen once he passes on, and he starts to panic. When I die, Solomon's realizing, I won't be able to take any of this with me. All the houses, the vineyards, the silver and gold, the flocks and herds, none of it will be coming with me. And this is a cause of great anxiety for Solomon. His mind like ours so often does, goes to the worst-case scenario, right? He's thinking, I have all this great stuff that will be left to my heir, but look at verse 19. Who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool? In Solomon here, by the way that he phrases who knows, he's implying that his heir will be a fool. More than likely, whoever gets my stuff, my my kids, are going to be foolish, And maybe Solomon knew his kids' hearts and their proclivity towards entitlement. Who knows? But if we know history, this proves to be true, right? When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam inherits the kingdom and ends up losing pretty much all of it. Most scholars say five-sixths of the kingdom gets squandered by Solomon's son. And we need to feel Solomon's tension here. Put yourself in your shoes. Unlimited wealth, unlimited resources... But when I die, it just goes to someone else. 
All the fruit of my labor. How is that fair? Worst case, he'll be a fool and he'll squander it all. But even best case, if his heir is wise, he'll still get the benefit from things that he did not earn. He'll gain what he doesn't deserve and probably won't even appreciate it. We see Solomon say twice in these two verses, verse 18, all the fruit of my labor, which I have labored under the sun. Then again in verse 19, all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. Solomon's frustrated. As this independently wealthy and powerful man, he's struck by this harsh reality that I've been working for someone else my entire life. All my hard work, achieving, acquiring, accumulating, it's not fair that someone else just gets to have it once I go on. And this leads him to despair. Now look at verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor. He says it again. For which I have labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, he's speaking about himself, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. So Solomon's heart, we see, it's drifting towards depression because he's focusing on himself and all the things that he's done. And I see a bit of self-righteousness in here, too. If you look at verse 21, he talks about how he's worked. I've worked with wisdom, he says. He's thinking about all the great decisions he's made that have resulted in his incalculable wealth. And he says, I've worked with knowledge. He's thinking through the tons of hours like many of you students have put in, studying and learning and growing in your skill. He's thinking through his understanding of business and operations and investment and all the time, energy, and labor he's put into it. And he also says, I've worked with skill. He's thinking about all his various abilities that have allowed him to expand this humongous kingdom. And yet at the end of the day, at the end of his life, He's thinking, what's the point of spending all this time and energy to acquire all this stuff when it's just going to go to someone else? This is not just vanity. It's more than vanity, Solomon says. He says, verse 21, this is a great evil. He feels a sense of injustice about what's happening. So to pull back here, verse 18 through 21, we see Solomon's anxiety and his despair grow from considering the future. What's going to happen once I pass on? But verses 22 and 23 give us another view. Even in the present, Solomon's thinking, while I'm still alive, my work now is a source of frustration. It's just not a future issue. It's a present issue. So look at verse 22. Solomon says, For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. So Solomon recognizes here a reality we all face, right? Work is hard. It can be painful and filled with grief. Well, and like Sol- Solomon, some of us are asking on a regular basis, maybe even now, like, what's the point of the, doing the work that I'm doing? Is what I'm doing really worth it? All my labor, the striving, the stress, the grief, 
does the amount of gain outweigh the amount of strain and pain? You know, work, as we all know, requires a lot of physical energy. Some vocations more than others, right? I'm always in awe of the guys that are out roofing the houses in 100 plus degree heat. I'm in awe of those guys. And people on their feet, maybe in a production facility or out in a field working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, or the stay-at-home moms chasing their kids, cooking food, changing diapers, cleaning messes, right? Some work requires incredible amounts of physical energy. But work also requires great amounts of mental and even emotional energy. And look at verse 23, the second part of what he says there. Even at night, his mind does not rest. Even at night, his mind does not rest. Have you ever been kept up at night by a stressful situation at work? Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night sweating because of something that's going on in the office? You know, many of us have experienced negative side effects of being consumed by our work. You know, work can affect our mental energy, our emotional energy, and even our relational capacity. Work can consume our minds, bring stress to our bodies, and impact our everyday lives. And perhaps this morning, this might serve as a warning for some of us. Maybe anxiety is filling you because of your work. Are, do you find yourself consumed with work even when you're not at work? I found myself there many times. Perhaps some of us, our perspective needs to change. You know, maybe we're too focused on the pursuit of earth, earthly pleasure and treasure, and we're using work as a means to acquire it, so we're consumed by the pursuit of acquiring the treasure. Or perhaps we're looking for an identity in our work rather than receiving an identity from Christ and then working from that identity. You know, the reality is, Solomon says, we've all experienced, that under the sun, our work cannot satisfy. It will not satisfy the deep longings of our souls. And as Solomon shows, using work to gain the reward of physical treasure will leave us longing every time. You know, in this fallen world, work is just hard. It's plagued by frustration and futility. So if you know your Bible, this is not unique and specific to Ecclesiastes. The rest of the Bible would teach to this, right? So let's zoom out for a bit, rewind to Genesis chapter 1. You can turn there, and we'll see God's initial intent for work before it was marred by sin. So Genesis chapter 1, we're just going to skim through these chapters and then focus in on chapter 3. So right out of the gate, first page of the Bible, we see God at work. God's creating, he's separating, he's making, he's gathering, he's placing. I counted it. In the first two chapters of Genesis alone, there are 15 different actions that we see God doing to establish his initial creation out of nothing. In, in rhythmic, meticulous fashion, we see God filling and forming. He fills and forms. He fills and forms. And every new facet of his creation, we hear him proclaim over it, now that's good. So in the beginning, God worked. And because of this, the Christian view is that work itself is not bad. And work is not a necessary evil that resulted from the fall. But from the very beginning, work has had inherent dignity and value because of its divine origin. Our God, Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit is a working God. And as those created in his image, we were created as workers. But we weren't just created to work. God has also commissioned us with work to do. Genesis 1 and 2, God tells Adam and Eve to rule, to be fruitful, to fill, subdue, cultivate, keep. God gave them dominion over his creation and commissioned them to work the garden, to care for it. Work was part of God's initial goodness to humanity. Work was a blessing. It was a gift. In human partnership together and in divine partnership with God, human beings were created to cultivate and care for God's creation. So for Christians, it's not a matter of should we work. It's a matter of why we work, how we work, and who we work for. We'll unpack that a little bit more towards the end. But then Genesis 3, right? The uh, chapter where everything just goes down. And the curse of sin we see fractures everything, including our work. Look at Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. Cursed be the ground because of you. Listen to these words. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So work itself is not a curse. It's important that we get this. But as a result of sin, work is now cursed. And as we read Ecclesiastes, and we can all attest from our own experience, work is difficult. It's filled with thorns and thistles and sweat, either literal or metaphorical. And this is something we'll all have to wrestle with and fight through our entire lives until we too return to the ground and all our stuff gets passed on to someone else. Because of sin, work is troublesome and toilsome. It can be frustrating, fruitless, and cannot fill the deep longings of our souls. But work has always had and will continue to have divine purpose and dignity in God's beautiful design. So that's in part the Christian view of work. So how do we navigate our way through all of this? Let's flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We've seen Solomon's struggle of viewing work under the sun. But he takes a hard right turn in verse 24. And here for the first time really in the whole book, his perspective starts to shift from under the sun to beyond the sun. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also, I have seen, is from the hand of God. Like I said, this is a, literally a turning point in the whole book. One writer has said, it's an oasis of optimism in a wilderness of despair. This is a major shift in Solomon's perspective, and it's the first fully positive thing that he said in the book thus far. So here in verse 24, flowing out of his despair, Solomon is starting to see the difference that having God in the picture might make. He's thinking, what if I looked at my work, my life, in light of God? And so he does, and When he does, he realizes that work is good. 
and can be experienced as good if we see it as a gift from the hand of God. Verse 24 again, this also I have seen is from the hand of God. Our God's a giver. He gives us the good gift of work. Verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So if I was to paraphrase what Solomon's thinking, I'd say it's God himself who gives us the food to eat. It's God himself who gives me the work to do to get the food to eat. And it's God himself who actually enables me to enjoy both the work and the food. This is a beyond-the-sun perspective, right? God is a giver, Solomon's realizing. And he's starting to see that God is both the source and the centerpiece of all enjoyment. Instead of dwelling in the despair and frustration and futility of work, what if we, like Solomon, were to see work beyond the sun as a gift from God to be enjoyed to its fullest capacity? Solomon basically is starting to say here a theme that continues throughout the remainder of the book. And here's the theme. Enjoy God's gifts to the fullest. That's a truly beyond-the-sum perspective that's only possible when God's in the equation. And just to be clear, what Solomon's saying here is different from the let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die perspective. Solomon's not promoting here a self-indulgent pursuit. He's already done that. This is a God perspective, a life lived beyond the sun in which we enjoy fully all the gifts that God has given. In other words, Solomon's discovering, I can enjoy life if I enjoy it in God. I can pursue pleasure if I pursue it in God. And I can find satisfaction in my work if it's enabled by God. But apart from God, Solomon sees that We can't find true enjoyment and satisfaction in life. You know, under the sun, it's like you hit a ceiling. There's a certain capacity that you can enjoy and experience, but you hit the ceiling. There's a cap on the degree of satisfaction that we can experience with an under-the-sun perspective. And the reality is that those who know God and live their lives in God have greater capacity for experiencing pleasure and joy than those who don't. Those who are living their lives apart from God, you know, they can experience pleasure, but without knowing the creator, without experiencing the giver, and without seeing the intent behind every good gift, the experience capacity is a little bit smaller, much smaller. Look at verse 26. Solomon brings up this idea. He's juxtaposing two different types of people. Verse 26, for a person who is good in God's sight He has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. So do you see the two types of people? He mentions people who are good in God's sight. The ESV says the the one who pleases God. To this type of person, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the other type of person, Solomon calls the sinner, God gives another task. So it seems like the distribution of God's gifts and the enjoyment of these gifts is based on what type of person you are. If you're pleasing to God, we can say, you know, under God's favor, the recipient of spiritual blessing, if you're in Christ, you get God's very own gifts of wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
wisdom from God to you, knowledge from God to you, joy from God to you. But if you're a sinner, if you're someone who's not yet in Christ, you still get a gift from God, but it's the meaningless, monotonous, at times menial task of gathering and collecting in which those fruits can't be enjoyed in their fullness. In other words, your work will end up futile and frustrating apart from God. I think this is the point Solomon's emphasizing here. He's, he's saying if you, your experience of work depends on your perspective, and your perspective depends on your position. Let me say that again. Your experience of work depends on your perspective, and your perspective depends on your position. If your position is in Christ, you'll be able to see all of life, including your work, from a beyond-the-sun perspective, which will then change your experience. But if you're not in Christ, you can experience only what lies under the sun, and your everyday work cannot satisfy to the full capacity. One commentator I read said this well. This is helpful, so I'll share it with you. He says, there's a world of difference between life as a mindless drudgery and life as a God-given gift. Without God, we invest our life gathering and collecting like an occupational therapy to fill time. Working so hard without purpose or hope is empty and meaningless. But with God, there is an exciting dimension to life, which is endlessly intriguing and fulfilling. So, have you experienced this beyond-the-sun perspective in your own work? Or are you more acquainted with the the under-the-sun way? And this, I think, is why movies like Office Space and shows like The Office, which Who's an Office fan in here? All right, cool, half of us. I love The Office, one of my favorite series of all time. Completely irrelevant, you're welcome. <laughs> but I think that's why shows like that were so popular and movies like Office Space are so hilarious because this is our life, right? This is what we all experience and know far too well. And even as Christians, we're prone to just reverting to this under-the-sun view of work. But for those in Christ, there's something different to be had. There's something beyond the sun that's being offered us. So back in April, um, a, a bunch of guys gathered for the Melanie Park men's retreat. Who was there on that one? Cool, yeah, I think there were about 35, 40 people that, that came up. We brought in Trey Corey, a pastor from uh, College Station, to teach on the topic of faith and work. And something he, he said in his first session I thought was really helpful he mentioned this idea that there's really three types of employees. There's those who are engaged in their work. There's those who are not engaged in their work. And there's those who are actively disengaged in their work. And he explained what those meant. So those engaged in their work, they work with passion and they feel a deep connection to their work. Maybe that's you. Those not engaged in their work are just checked out. They're essentially sleepwalking through the day. Maybe that's you. And then those actively disengaged in their work are not just unhappy at work, but they're working to undermine the whole operation. I hope that's not you. If it is, there's help and hope. So come see us and we can talk through that. But the statistics Trey showed us were, were very startling. It's from a 2012 study. He, re he revealed that 30% of American employees were engaged in their work. All right. And then he said 18% were actively disengaged, leaving 52% in 
who were not engaged in their work. 52% of Americans are not engaged in their work, meaning that they're sleepwalking through their day. He went on to make this point that, that most people, 52%, live somewhere between a grudging acceptance of their job at best and an active dislike of it. Grudging acceptance, active dislike. Are you on that spectrum? Or by God's grace, are you beyond that spectrum? You know, sadly for many of us, that this is all we'll ever experience. At best, going to work every day in grudging acceptance of our jobs. But for those of us who are in Christ, God is inviting us to experience our work differently. And as we, be, as we begin to close, I just want to talk through what that might look like. Is everybody good? We all still here? All right. I apologize for my voice, too. It's a little raspy. So turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. This New Testament passage is helpful, I think, to help us start to build out what a beyond-the-sum perspective of work might look like for us who are in Christ. And this morning, if you're not in Christ, first things first, I'd invite you to be in Christ. I'd invite you to surrender your heart to Him, give your life to Him, so that you can experience work beyond the sun, that you don't hit that ceiling of the enjoyment that can be had in your everyday work. But Colossians 3, Paul's speaking to Christians here. Verse 23, he says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So let's break this down and talk practically as we close, right? We'll take it phrase by phrase. He says, whatever you do. So are you a teacher? Are you a farmer? Are you in business, communications, engineering, medical field, government law? Whatever you do, whatever your domain, we need to believe that God has called us and has commissioned us to work there, to be there. Christians believe that God has sovereignly placed us not just in our families, in our cities, but also in our workplaces to be his ambassadors to the world. And when you pull back to think about it, it's crazy that the God of the universe is loving and caring for his creation through you, through me, through the work that we do. Whatever we do, God himself is caring for his creation. However mundane and menial you think your job may seem, it has great dignity and worth in God's sight if it serves the good of people. Because through our work, we're God's hands and his fingers, sustaining and caring for his world. You know, Tim Keller has said, I'll share a quote uh, here. He says, look at the places in the Bible that say that God gives every person their food. How does God do that? Well, it's through human work. It's from the simplest farm girl milking the cows to the truck driver bringing the produce to the market to the local grocer. God could feed us directly, but he chooses to do it through work. That's a great perspective of work, that we're working more than for a paycheck. We're working more than because we have to, to care for our families. We're working because God is cultivating his world and caring for people through us. So, in whatever you do, whatever your domain, 
How are we to do this work? Colossians continues. Basically, it says, work hard. It says, do your work heartily. The NIV says, work at it with all your heart. So as Christians, we invest our mental energy, emotional energy, physical energy in our work. We work hard. But as we saw earlier, we don't look to the work itself to fill our life with significance. We work hard from our identity in Christ, not for an identity in our work. Colossians 2 continues, we work hard as for the Lord rather than for men. So whatever we do, we're doing it in a way that tries to bring honor and pleasure to the Lord. You know, this is a much bigger topic than we have time for today, how to honor God or bring pleasure to the Lord in our work. But I think it requires at least two things, more but not less, at least two things for how we honor the Lord in our work. I think as Christians, we don't just work hard, but we work honestly, and we work humbly. So honestly, Christians, God has given us the Holy Spirit as kind of like a moral compass, right? An inner GPS to navigate how we work our way through situations. And God enables us often in the, in the marketplace to work, uh, to work honestly in, in a countercultural sort of way. And as we do so, as we work honestly, it commands attention and it demands an explanation. But we also work humbly. The Holy Spirit in us gives us this ability to navigate our way through situations. So if we succeed, we walk humbly. We don't get proud. If we fail, we walk humbly. We don't go into despair. And if we're bored, we aren't lazy. We're not inflated by success. We're not destroyed by failure. We're lazy in boredom. We work humbly in all that we do. The Spirit of God helps us stay balanced and grounded, centered and secured in Christ in whatever we do. You know, as children of God, we work hard, we work honestly, we work humbly as we aim to please the Lord. Because at the end of the day, right, this is how God in Christ has worked for us. And this is the heart of the gospel, that it's not about our work, it's not about what we've done or what we do, it's about what God has done for you. The work of God is far more significant than the work of Brian. And before Brian begins to do his work, I need to know the work of God that he's done on my behalf. So as we've seen in Genesis, not only do we see God working in creation, but God himself has worked hard to accomplish our salvation. He has humbly stooped low to secure our standing in him. He's done more than we can ask or imagine to love us, to serve us, to make us more like him. In John chapter 17, and we'll start to close here, at the end of his life, you don't need to turn there, John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and and we hear him say these words to his father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Jesus says, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And then in John 19, verse 30, as he's hanging on the cross, moments away from death, we hear Jesus cry out, it is finished. Mission accomplished. The work is complete. Salvation secured. And because he's done that, 
we can now work with purpose in His power for His glory. I want to leave you with this. Jesus came from beyond the sun to work perfectly under the sun so that we can do our work under the sun in a beyond the sun sort of way. Let me say that again. Jesus came from beyond the sun to work perfectly under the sun so that we can do our work under the sun in a beyond the sun sort of way. So like Jesus, we work hard. We work honestly. We work humbly. We work from our identity in Christ, not for an identity in our work. And in all that we do, whatever we do, we work to love and serve the people God has placed around us as we care for and cultivate his creation. You know, Christians do good work. We work well. We work with all our hearts. And as we do so, we not only bring glory to God, but we can find purpose and meaning and enjoyment in our work. So family, in whatever we do, may we work with this beyond the sun perspective. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll call it a day. God, Father, Son, Spirit, thank you that you have worked for us. You have done all that's needed for our salvation. You are working now in our sanctification to make us more like Christ. And Lord, from that perspective, in that identity as a child of God, we want to work. We want to work well. We want to work to serve others. We want to work to glorify you. And in our work, we want to find enjoyment and significance. Not getting it from our work, but getting it from you and then working out of that. So Lord, this morning, I just pray that you'd help us all in, in whatever we do, in whatever our domain of work, that you would help us to work as Christians, to work like Christ, to work from a beyond the sun perspective. And as we do so, Lord, I ask that you would do your work to cause others who don't know you to ask questions to ask us why we're working this way, to ask us how we're working this way. And Lord, that even in our work, we'd be able to point to you, the ultimate worker. So Lord, thank you for this time. We just pray again for the elders as they're driving home from the retreat. We just ask that you'd continue to do your work to give them fresh vision and insight into how to best lead and love this body. And Lord, as members of this church, would you enable us to do our work well, not just in the marketplace, but in this church, that we would serve and care for one another well as we live on mission and seek the gospel movement in Lubbock and beyond. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, family, love you. Have a great day. Enjoy your work tomorrow.